0: Well, I have a a few hobbies, uh, one of which, uh, probably my favorite one, uh, is I love to play tabletop games uh, when I have some free time with my friends, with my family. And uh, because of this particular passion that I have, one of my most common Google searches is tips for playing fill in the blank with whatever game I happen to be into at the time. And uh, you might not do the exact same Google search uh, when you Google things. Maybe your interests are a little bit different, but I imagine that many of you have probably searched for tips at one point or another, because I think that uh, a lot of us like tips or life hacks, handy-dandy rules of thumb to help guide us and give us the edge uh, in the areas of life that we are passionate about or maybe growing in, growing in skills. Uh, I think we all love tips because we want to get better at stuff. Uh, For example, if you're starting out with woodworking, this might be a very beginner tip, but you might Google and get the tip, measure twice, cut once, right? Pretty basic. Uh, If you're a golfer, uh, you might get the tip, don't swing at the ball, swing through it. Learning to bake, then remember, your pro tip is cooking is an art, but baking is a science. Ah, you better follow your recipe to a T. Getting out of debt, Make a budget, stick to it. And if you want to raise a crop of delicious homegrown tomatoes in sub-Arctic Fairbanks, Alaska, move to Georgia and try again. <laughs> Best pro tip ever. Maybe you can grow tomatoes here. Some of us can't do that, right? And these secret tips are great because typically they're memorable, they're straightforward, and we often feel it's pretty doable. I feel like I could do that, right? And we know that if we follow these tips, if we follow the advice that we're likely to get better at whatever we're trying to get better at. Uh, But we all know that the full mastery of golf is not found entirely in that very good tip, swing through the ball. We know that mastery of baking is not found in that very helpful rule of thumb to follow your recipes closely. But I would say that the good tips, um, the really good ones, are the kind that pay dividends, not just for the beginner, uh, but also for the seasoned pro. Because some of these tips are so simple that they can be understood by anyone, but they can also, they're also profound enough that they could stretch a master. And we're gonna look at one of those really good secret tips today. It's simple, but it's also deep. And it all has to do with living the Christian life well. Uh, And so to launch us off, I'm gonna put a question up here for us, and they ask: well, what's the secret? to living a vibrant Christian life. Now, that means, by vibrant, I mean one that's full of vigor, vitality, one where we look more like Jesus at the end of our lives than uh, we do now. And uh, to get our answer, to get our pro tip, we're not going to go to Google, though I'm sure someone's going to Google it and come up with something there. Um, We're going to go to a seasoned pro, the Apostle Paul. And no doubt he knew a thing or two about uh, following Jesus and living the Christian life well. Well, and what makes his tip here about living the vibrant Christian life even more powerful is that this word of advice from Paul is given while he himself is in prison. And despite the fact that he is locked up uh, behind bars, so to speak, he's not having a pity party or saying things like, ah, oh, my life's on hold, this is so unfair. Uh, he might be locked up, but his faith isn't shut down. And that gives him some street credit with us because we know that this guy's living out the very thing that he's passing on to the Philippian church uh, and to us. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please open up. We're going to be in Philippians chapter three. And we're going to get look at this tip that Paul's going to give us on living a vibrant Christian life, living it well. What is this secret that he has about living the vibrant Christian life? Um, We're going to be in Philippians 3, starting in verse 1, 3-1. And we're just covering the first 11 verses here in chapter 3 today, so I'm going to read the entire thing, and then we're going to get back to our question and to Paul's answer to that, his pro tip. So Paul's uh, talking to the believers uh, in the city of Philippi, and he says to them in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision, who worship God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. To know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, that's our passage here today. Uh, Let's uh, unpack that a little bit. Now, my starting question here I have up for us is what's the secret to living a vibrant Christian life? I'm gonna give you Paul's answer up front, uh, and then we're gonna talk about what it means. Uh, In case you missed it, Uh, Paul's answer to this question, his pro tip for living the Christian life well, is found right there in verse 1 in these four little words. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That is it. Or if you want to put it another way, you could say that one key, not the only key, but one key to living a vibrant, vital Christian life is to rejoice in Jesus. And we just read over this passage, you might be looking at it going, huh? That's it? That's his pro tip? Well, I see that Paul says to rejoice in the Lord in verse 1, but then it seems like he switches topics right after that. I mean, what does the rest of this passage have to do with rejoicing in Jesus? To which I would say, absolutely everything. Although Paul's commands to rejoice in the Lord is only explicit in verse 1, He shows how he lives it out in the rest of this passage. And what I'm saying is is that this concept of rejoicing in the Lord uh, is woven throughout. First, Paul says it with his words, but then he gives us the example of his life. And the key to seeing this and understanding this pro tip from Paul is to think about what does it really mean to rejoice in the Lord? I mean, Uh, I don't know if you guys use the word rejoice much. I don't really say it all that often. It's kind of like, rejoice in the Lord sounds almost like this semi-meaningless phrase that maybe Christians might say when they get excited, like, oh, yay, God, rejoice in the Lord, where it has maybe a little bit of emotion but not much content of meaning on the bone. But I would say that's not the case. Uh, To rejoice does have a lot of meaning. It means to uh, feel or express great joy, in someone or something, to feel or show delight, to esteem highly, to value, to treasure. These kinds of words kind of go along with it. Um, And in this passage, Paul uses a lot of different verbs to talk about his relationship to Christ. He rejoices in the Lord. He boasts in the Lord. Some of your translations might have it that he glories in Jesus. He talks about a desire to gain Jesus about wanting to be found in him. And more than once, uh, he talks about knowing Jesus. And not just kind of a I know about Jesus, but a deep, intimate knowing of him. But undergirding all of these different verbs is this concept of rejoicing, taking delight in, treasuring, and highly valuing Jesus. So uh, for consistency's sake, just as we go through kind of our bullet points in the sermon, I'm going to refer to it most often as delighting in Jesus. You could say rejoicing, it's a fine word, just not a word that I use a whole lot in my everyday language. Same concept, but I think delight is probably a more accessible word to a lot of us. So let's look again at our passage and break it down a little and see why delighting in Jesus or rejoicing, if you want to say it that way, is the secret to living a vibrant Christian life. My first point is this. Delighting in Jesus will get you off to the right start in your faith. The right start. In other words, the very foundation of our faith comes from treasuring Jesus and esteeming him highly. Uh, Let's look at verse 1 again. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Okay, So he leads with his basic pro tip, rejoice in the Lord. He says, hey, this isn't a new message. I've said this before. But then at the end of verse when he says something very curious there. He says, it's a safeguard for you. And we might ask, well, why would telling them to rejoice in Jesus, to delight in him, to treasure him, why would that be a safeguard to protect them? And the answer is actually found in verse 2. There's someone that they need to be protected from. Verse two says, look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, uh, I imagine many of you are reading in the 2011 version of the NIV, so there it just translated, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. They just say, watch out, once. In the Greek, that verb, watch out, is there three times. So I've interjected it back in there so we get the impact of that. Three warnings, watch out, watch out, watch out. But one group of people, and it's called uh, three different ways. Dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Three different ways to describe the same group. Well, who's he talking about here? Well, Paul is referring to a group of people uh, that are commonly called the Judaizers, okay? If you remember back in the first century church, uh, most of the early Christians were Jewish. And then as the gospel continued to spread, more and more Gentiles would become Christian. And uh, this upset some of the Jewish believers in Christ. They said, well, hey, this is too easy for these Gentiles to just believe in Jesus. We gotta go teach them right how to put their uh, trust in what Moses taught us to do. Circumcision, the food laws, all the Jewish laws and so as these different churches would pop up and be a mix of Jews and Gentiles, these Judaizers would go in and say, uh, guys, you know, Jesus, he's okay and all that, but you really got to follow Moses if you want to be the people of God. You got to be circumcised. You've got to follow all the rules, do all the stuff. And um, so this was a problem that Paul was addressing here. And his name calling uh, is a little bit ironic here. Uh, First thing Paul calls this group is he calls them dogs. Now, that's ironic because typically that's what a Jew would call a dirty Gentile. dog is is an unclean animal, so there's a common kind of euphemism or kind of slander against Gentiles is to call them dogs, right? The ironic part here is Paul is calling these super-Jews dogs. Second part, uh, he says they're doers of evil. Uh, This would be ironic because, again, These are the Judaizers, the super-Jews, the ones who are following all the rules. They come in looking clean, and they call them doers of evil. They say, oh, oh, pardon my friend, I'm a doer of good, not a doer of evil, right? Uh, It's again ironic. Third thing he says, mutilators of the flesh. And again, this group of Judaizers did not see themselves as mutilators, but performing this sacred and clean procedure when they did circumcision to make people right with God. But the bottom line of all three of these ironic terms is uh, the Judaizers were pawning themselves off as the good guys, the ones who are pure, the ones who do good, the ones who can make you clean before God. But Paul's saying the exact opposite is going on with these guys. And you notice his language is pretty harsh. Uh, He doesn't pull any punches. Probably wouldn't fly in the 21st century here. That's not very Christian of you, Paul. Why can't you just turn the other cheek or... Be more tolerant or agree to disagree with these other brothers and sisters in Christ. Why be so ugly towards them? His language is harsh because the threat to their faith is real. He doesn't want the people of God to sabotage their faith by falling into a major trap. And this is the trap with the Judaizers. The people are being tricked into trusting in themselves in their own righteousness, in their own accomplishments, circumcision, food laws, this kind of thing, rather than trusting solely in Jesus. That's the trap. And that's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord because it's a safeguard for you. The antidote, the cure to this legalistic self-righteousness is to rejoice in Jesus, not yourself, to esteem Jesus, to treasure him, and not your own deeds. Delighting in Jesus will get you off to the right start in your faith. And uh, I think one thing that's important for us not to miss here is this command in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. It's connected to those three commands in verse 2, look out, look out, look out. Okay? It's not totally random. It's not like Paul's having a bad day, and women is like, hey, y'all. Rejoice in the Lord, but watch out for them dogs, them evil mutilators and chainsaw massacre people, right? It's not like it's unrelated here, but these commands are two sides, two flip sides to the same coin. Uh, He's saying um, rejoice in the Lord because it'll protect you because you have to watch out, watch out, watch out for those who are trying to make you rejoice in, Delight in, highly esteem yourself and your stuff and your accomplishments rather than Jesus. Uh, and that's a losing game, and Paul knows that. Basically, as Paul is just laying out in these first two verses here, he's like saying, hey, everyone, you've got a choice to make here. Are you going to rejoice in Jesus and what he's done? Or are you going to rejoice and exalt in yourselves? And uh, Paul says in verse 3, he lays out for them why it's better to choose to rejoice in Jesus rather than themselves. He says in verse 3, he says, For it's we, not the Judaizers, it's we who are the circumcision, we who worship God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, when he says... um, we're the circumcision. That's just a way of saying we're the true people of God, right? We're the ones who are in covenant relationship with God. And then he clarifies, well, who are the true people of God? Well, those who worship God by his spirit, not the flesh, right? Not by obeying the Jewish laws. We who boast in Christ Jesus, not ourselves. We who put no confidence in the flesh, circumcision, or any of the other things that they would do to follow the rules. Trusting Jesus is the right start and the only start to get us going in our faith. Uh, That's the only way any one of us here is going to be part of the true people of God. If we stop trusting in our own spiritual resume, if I can put it that way, and instead boast in Jesus, boast in what he has done for us by dying on the cross and by rising from the dead to forgive our sins. This is the foundation and start of all of our faith. It's the start of discipleship. So um, the basic principle there, uh, the basic choice that those Philippians had to make, it's laid out there in these first three verses of the chapter. Uh, what follows after this is basically um, a life example from Paul's life showing him how he lives that out. He basically says, uh, hey, if you're still in the, the dividing line of trusting in Jesus or trusting in yourself, let me tell you, I didn't fall for these guys' tricks and neither should you. Um, so, uh, verse 3, Paul starts talking about himself. He says, No, we put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He's setting himself as, Hey, if anyone was going to follow these guys, I should have been the guy. Continues on to verse 4 and gives this laundry list. He says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But wherever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And you know, I was just thinking, as he's reading out his kind of resume here, it kind of sounds like those cheesy kind of uh, dramas or movies, like when they have, like they announce some king coming and they give him like 50 titles or something like that. It's kind of like he's reading off his titles here. All this stuff that I've done here. But what Paul's doing here and showing his own life, it's a classic kind of greater to lesser kind of argument. He basically gives this long laundry list about stuff that he could choose to boast in and says, look at that long list, but I didn't choose to go that route and boast to myself. I chose to boast in Jesus. And the suggestion here is that his laundry list, which is pretty long, is probably longer than their laundry list or our laundry list. Uh, and he's saying... Well, hey, if I didn't do it, then probably you shouldn't either. And all these different things on his list, they were things that he was either born with, born into, or things that he accomplished in his life, his pedigree and his performance. So let's just go through them here, his laundry list of of things he could brag about. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So he's not a Jewish convert later in life. His parents obeyed the law. He was a Jew right from the time he was born. Uh, He says, I was of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, Benjamin is one of the tribes that stayed faithful to uh, David's house, stayed faithful to the temple when the northern kingdom broke off from the south. Uh, He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Jew's Jew. He wasn't deficient in any way. Um, And then he goes into things about his performance. He says, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Okay, Pharisees were one of the stricter sects of Uh, Judaism, and he says, I joined up, I signed on the dotted line and started following all of the rules. As for zeal, persecuting the church. I wasn't just a wallflower. I showed my fire for God by getting rid of them pesky Christians. And then he says, as for righteousness based on the law, which is what these Judaizers were all about, right? Can you do it all? Can you follow the rules? He says, I was faultless. I got a long list, he says here. But his point is this. He says, if anyone ought to trust or rejoice or brag in himself and their pedigree and their accomplishments, it should have been him. But did he choose that? No, he says, verse 7, whatever were gains to me, this long list, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He looked at this long list of everything he had to brag about or so-called brag about before God, And then he looked at what Jesus had to offer instead. And Paul says, hey, man, it's no contest. The righteousness that Jesus has to offer is far better than anything on my list or anything I could accomplish. I'm going to boast in him and not in myself. I'm going to rejoice in him. And that's how the Christian life starts for each one of us. Not by boasting or rejoicing in ourselves or our works or our deeds, but by realizing that we're not righteous, in ourselves, and that every bit of our right standing that we have before God is only because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for us. None of us can kind of go before God with our own 21st century laundry list and say something like, well, hey, God, I must be in good books with you because I was born into a Christian family. In fact, my dad was a pastor, and I have a lot of missionaries and my aunts and uncles, and I did missionary work myself. I built a few churches in Honduras. And uh, I've only missed church about four times in my whole life. And I had good reasons. I've been baptized. I read my Bible every day. I'm generous with my money. I'm generous with my time. I help out with charities. I help out in the nursery. I get to people who are begging at Fred Myers at the exit every time. (laughs) I don't do drugs. I don't do smoke. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't dance. I don't watch R rated movies and on and on and on and on. No, we don't boast in ourselves, but we boast in him and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the laundry list of our own achievements because we know that all that stuff pales in comparison with Jesus in his accomplishments by dying for our sins on the cross and rising from the dead. Paul says, whatever we're gains to me, that whole list, I consider it loss for the sake of Christ. Delighting in Jesus will get you off to the right start in your faith. And uh, truth be told here, uh, what Paul's written in these first seven verses is some powerful stuff. Uh, We could almost just wrap it up. Don't get excited, I'm not wrapping it up. Uh, But we could almost do that and put a bow on it and just stop right there. He's given his pro tip to rejoice in the Lord as a safeguard for their faith so that people don't boast in themselves. But he's not done talking yet. He's about to take it up a notch here. And what he says next absolutely blows the lid off this. That is gonna be our pro tip into the latter part of our Christian discipleship. Because as it turns out, rejoicing in the Lord, that's not just a good rule of thumb to start out your Christian life. This life hack of rejoicing in the Lord has long legs that are going to help Paul and help us run the race well that will carry us through to the end. In the remaining few verses, Paul's going to share a little bit more from his life and show by his example that delighting in Jesus will help you finish strong in your faith. Verse 7, he's already made clear. Whatever was on his list, whatever were gains to him are considered lost. But then he goes a step further. Verse 8, he says, What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things— And the gist of these last four verses here is uh, that rejoicing in Jesus and valuing him, it's not just the starting point of our faith, but it's also the goal of our maturity. Paul values Jesus so highly, he treasures him so much that he knows that there's nothing else he wants more as he progresses in his faith. And you can probably hear it as he writes these words here, I mean, how badly and strongly he yearns to know Jesus more. It's almost painful uh, to listen to, because uh, it's so intense. I mean, in verse 7, which we kind of just stopped our sermon at, he says, hey, I looked at column A of my life, everything I had to offer to God, and I compared it to column B, everything that Jesus had to offer. And I chose column B, no contest. But then in verse 8, he says, and there's more. I looked at everything else out there in the world, all those accomplishments, all that stuff, all the things that weren't even on my list yet. And then I looked again at column B, what Jesus had to offer, and says, you know what? I don't want any of that other junk. I want Jesus. I consider everything, everything, everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. He says, I consider the rest of it garbage. It's all junk, man, that I may gain Christ." and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And I would say that kind of heart, that kind of attitude that we see in Paul, that kind of delight, that kind of rejoicing in Jesus doesn't just get your faith off to the right start, but that's like this infinite mass this gra- that has this gravitational pull in our hearts that it causes us to grow in our faith, and become more and more like Jesus as we spend time with him. Uh, basic truth in life. Probably many of you have already figured this out. But you will pursue, and me, what you love. You will pursue what you love. Scripture puts it like this. Proverbs sixteen twenty-six. You don't need to turn there. It says, the laborer's appetite works for them; him. His hunger drives him on. And that's just a fancy way of saying that when you want something and really hunger for it, you are going to be motivated to go out and get it. What you want, good or bad, you will chase down. And that's why this pro tip of rejoicing in Jesus is so powerful. If we value him, esteem him, hunger for him, that's going to drive us on. Saying, I'm not satisfied in just knowing about him or knowing him a little. I want to know him more. That kind of stuff is going to shape your life and shape us all more to Jesus as we walk with him. And listen to the cry of Paul's heart, verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in the sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Well, funny thing there, verse 10, he says, I want to know Jesus, but uh, hey, Paul, aren't you an apostle? Don't you kind of have to already know Jesus to get that job, (laughs) right? But his point here is he doesn't want to just know him a little. He wants to know him deeply. He wants to know him more. He says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. in context there, that's Jesus' resurrection life now for believers. The Holy Spirit is at work in us. But there's more. He says, I want to know him in the participation of his sufferings becoming like him in death. And this doesn't mean that Paul is some kind of sadist, uh, just kind of chasing down suffering uh, because he's weird or something like that. But he's suffering for Christ's sake. And he knows that if he does that, he's going to have a more intimate fellowship with Jesus. Paul was in jail, but Jesus himself had been arrested. Paul had been persecuted, maligned, beaten. Jesus had undergone that too. Paul had been abandoned by some of his friends. He'd been canceled, if I could put it that way. Jesus had too. But Paul's perspective on suffering, he's in jail now, remember, enabled him to endure those things and even to rejoice in them because he could see that the end goal of it was more fellowship with Jesus and knowing him better, and that's what he wanted. Now, the last verse here, uh, verse 11, says and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Um, I'll say this about verse 11. He's not doubting that he will uh, someday be raised from the dead. We know that from his other writings. He's not saying that he's trying to earn his way into heaven somehow. That goes against the entire passage as we just read it. But what it means is he's looking forward to this end goal, this fulfillment, this final stage of experiencing Jesus' resurrection power, even that his physical body would be raised from the dead, and that blows him away. He's saying, somehow, attaining to the resurrection, it's almost too good to be true. No, he knows it's true. Paul's looking forward to the life ahead, knowing his, Christ's resurrection power now, knowing the fellowship of suffering with Jesus, and knowing that in the future, his physical body is going to be raised from the dead. And what's drawing him forward through all of this is a strong desire to know and delight and to rejoice in Jesus. Delighting in Jesus will get you off to the right start. Delighting in Jesus will help you finish strong in your faith. Or I'll sum up the whole thing this way. Delighting in Jesus is one key, not the only key, but one key to living the Christian life well from A to Z. This is a pro tip with staying power. Good for you in the beginning of your walk. Good for you wherever you are at. Now, uh, as we wrap up, I want to just talk really quickly about application, because it's kind of hard to say, well, rejoice in Jesus. Just tell your heart to rejoice in him, right? Brass text, how do you find delight in Jesus if it's not there already? Or if you feel like you've been struggling for a while and your passion for Jesus hasn't been burning that brightly lately? Well, here are uh, two quick thoughts. One um, comes from Psalm 34.8. You don't need to turn there just says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Okay, so your application, my application, is to taste more of Jesus. Uh, We taste more of Jesus by watching our input, right? Regularly feeding on Scripture. If it's been a while since you've regularly been in God's Word, that's a good time to make it a part of your life regularly. Regularly bantering with other believers about where they're reading in Scripture. I think this is something, this is a desire that I would have for everyone in our church that we would regularly go to our brothers and sisters or family members or whoever and say, hey, what are you reading about, Teresa? What's going on? What is God teaching you? And then to hear from her and go back to to dialogue and banter God's word back and forth. You can um, fan this, this love for Jesus back into flame through podcasts from good teachers, from sound teachers, by making wise choices about the music you're listening to. And I would throw in this caveat with, with the music or the preachers. You do have to watch what you're listening to. Not all music, not all teachers are created equal. You want to make sure that whatever you're taking in is theologically sound, that it lines up with scripture. And you want to make sure that it focuses on Christ and not on people, boasting in Jesus and not on ourselves. That's, that's tip one. Tip two is, uh, in stirring up our delight in the Lord, is to remember God's, goodness to us in the past, remembering. Um, This is a tricky one to talk about, but I think what it is is it it comes down to uh, sharing our stories, telling ourselves where we were at when we first met Christ, talking about them with people in our family, talking about them with our friends, uh, about the time when there was an answered prayer, or about where you were when you first experienced God's grace. And uh, these kinds of things stir up our own love and our own recollection of where we were at. Because we can forget. We can get a little crusty at times. It also helps us to hear other people's stories as well. Uh, I'll just end with this. Um, 30 years ago, um, I'm kind of old now, Um, I got to serve um, in missions in Japan. It was a great time in my life. I was fresh out of college. I was a short-termer. And I think it was my first year that I was in Japan, I got to go to a Christian conference with a bunch of the veteran missionary families, right? There's a few of us short-termers and all these uh, kind of very A-type personalities, get-or-done, very godly Christian families who had given their life to serve in Japan over the long haul. And a lot of us short-termers were excited to be with these veterans and get to know them a little bit. And a funny thing happened. um, They had someone preach uh, to to all of us uh, at that conference and it was uh, one of the very few messages I can remember the gist of. 30, three decades later, I still remember this particular message. Because it was an oddball. It was, it was picked right out of Ezekiel 1 and 2. If you know Ezekiel 1 and 2, uh, it's a strange passage. It talks about Ezekiel starting out his ministry and having this vision of God on the throne. Weird-looking angels, wheels within wheels. And you're like, what do you do with that? And uh, the speakers point to all these missionaries, a lot of them veteran missionaries, was uh, Ezekiel was being called to a very hard mission field. Japan, hard mission field. A lot of effort, not much conversion in Japan. And he says, but what was going to carry him through uh, through that difficult ministry was remembering that encounter with God uh, where he says, yeah, I need to be doing this. I know I've seen God, I've seen who he is, and I need to move forward. And uh, the application during that conference was for all of us to kind of share our stories. Where were you when you first met Christ? Where were you at? Um, Talk about when you first experienced his grace. And again, these are are A-type personalities who had it all together, and there was hardly a dry eye in the room as people started sharing stories with one one another because we forget sometimes uh, that, you know, uh, we all need God's grace. We all have received God's grace if we're Christians, And it's good to remind ourselves of where we were at and to hear that story from each other. So that's another application, too. So get more Jesus in your diet. Remember your own God's stories, but share your God's stories with others. And ask ask your spouse or your friend or someone in your small group to say, hey, I haven't heard how you came to Christ. Tell me, I want to hear. And just delight in that and delight in Jesus. Um, We'll wrap it up there. Uh, Treasuring in Jesus, rejoicing in the Lord, It'll start you off right. It'll help us all finish well in the end. Delighting in Jesus is the key, one key to living the Christian life well from A to Z. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that none of us has to get a longer and longer resume, a longer and longer laundry list of, I did this and I went there and I did that, but we can look to you and say, it is finished. Your sacrifice is sufficient. We praise you. We praise you, Jesus. Thank you so much. Do you call us part of the family because of what you have done? Captivate our hearts again, Lord, for those of us who have been feeling uh, crusty or distant or whatever from you. Remind us of uh, when we first came to know your grace. Remind us of your goodness, your holiness, your purity, your perfection that you allow us to share in so graciously. Stir us up that we may walk well with you and wholeheartedly to the very end. For your glory, Jesus. Amen.